Hello. Poppin'. Yeah, how you doing? I'm good. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thanks very much for for joining us today. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, it's um I mean growing up, you know, you know, you, you and Andre created a an amazing legacy uh, in, in black culture and music um with the creation of Uptown and you know, I, I did a poll this evening, uh, you know, to people to, to say who their favorite record label was uh, between Uptown, Bad Boy, LaFace and So So Deaf. And almost half of the votes went to Uptown because of the caliber of artists you, you guys created. But before we get into to the, to that, you know, part of the journey of this show is to understand how you, your, your journey, you know, how you, where you brought up and raised and how you got into into music and entertainment and just seeing your progression. Uh, right. Yeah, so if we could just start off with, with where you're from and and, um, and we go from there. Okay, well, I'll tell you about, I'll do it simultaneously, me <laughs> and Andre. Okay. Hold on for a second. Hold on, sir. I don't know why you keep blinking out. But uh, <laughs> me and Andre grew up in the Bronx. Okay, in New York. So, yeah, Bronx, New York, relatively good kids, you know, <laughs> play, uh, yeah, touch football in the park and, you know, uh, do things that kids do, you know, ride on sleds, because we grew up in the uh, northern part of the Bronx, not okay. the south, so the northeast Bronx. And the northeast Bronx, just to let you know, that's where basically all the, like, Top drug dealers come from. Oh, uh, basketball players come from. A lot of basketball players come from there. A lot of entertainers come from there. Wow. And uh, so, at a very young age, me and Andre uh, was into music. You know, rap music was just emerging at that time. And and this is when they had like artists like King Tim the Third from the Fatback Band and Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow. And uh, even before him, Jimmy Spicer, Schooly D, and that kind of stuff. So we were like uh, 9, 10, 10 years old. Not when Curtis was doing it, but when Jimmy Spicer and these guys were doing it. Okay. And so we got into rap music, you know. And Andre, I used to go to clubs because I was very big for my age at the time. And I had a full-grown beard <laughs> at like 12 years old. Oh. And I look like everybody's uncle that I hung out with. <laughs> and uh, so me and Andre, you know, we would uh, talk about music and fashion and, you know, um, basketball, sports, because that's what we were surrounded by. You know, yeah. uh, we were surrounded by people that were very fashionable. And the most fashion forward people were from Harlem. Okay. And our eyes. So, and Harlem is the place where you had the uh, Rucker, you know, you had the rooftop, you had all these different um, drug dealers oh, that truth, yes. would hire, um, you know, uh, basketball players to uh, play on their team in the Rucker. So mm -hmm. they would have teams that were like million dollar teams wow. and uh, they would bet large amounts of money on these teams and to uh, play in a rucker. And they would, you know, lure, uh, you know, great college players, you know, um, even NBA players at that time. 
Wow. You know, and you know, all these guys played in the rucker before. Dr. J, um, you know, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. And then you had street legends that played in it, like Pee Wee Kirkland, who was, you know, could have went to the NBA if he wanted to, you know. And then you had Joe Hammond that was a drug addict. And he's the best player ever to play the game of basketball. Wow. And so you have all these people there. Now you put that there. Now you have the entertainers, the music people, you know what I mean? Like yeah. coming through there. And it's a mix of drug dealers, college educated professors that wanted to be in the street and go to the hot clubs, like, you know, the Red Parrot or whatever. Yeah. Then basketball players that wanted to be next to them. And, you know, in entertainment, there's always that element in the entertainment. Uh, and so uh, you had this mix of people and it was like a, it was like a Renaissance era, to be honest. It was like a Renaissance era after the Renaissance era. <laughs> and um, there was a kid there we were like 16 years old at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a kid there, and his name was Teddy Riley. Wow. And he's uh, a prodigy in the church. And he had 30 managers that were drug dealers, criminal <laughs> gangsters, or whatever. And it was impossible to get next to him just for him to make the, uh, you know, just for him to even produce a record for you. Because he was living in a project at that time and he had a studio set up there. And he was, you know, like I said, he's a prodigy in church moving around. So as we uh we coming out of high school, I mean, we going into high school, you know, we started giving parties, okay. hip-hop parties. And Andre always gave had the vision. He always had the musical vision of what the party should look like, what it should sound like, what the people should look like in it. And, you know, at first our thing was at 123 in the Bronx, you know, but I was already involved with hip hop music because the school I went to had DJ Breakout, Funky Four Plus One More, Raheem from the uh, 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 Furious Five, um, and you had Christopher Williams there. You had all wow. these people in this school that I went to it was called Truman High School in the Northeast Bronx. And I used to tell Andre, you know, in that school, we had the prettiest women in <laughs> on the planet. So Andre went to a high school called Charles Evan Hughes in, in Manhattan. And basically, it was a bum-ass school. <laughs> and Truman was like a brand-new school in a brand-new area in the Bronx called Co-op City. And what they had, you know, you had athletes moving up there, people that were becoming very successful in Harlem, whether it was selling drugs or going to school or, or, or whatever, they would start moving uptown because it was a better area because it had green grass, you know, <laughs> yeah, <goodness. laughs> uh, uh, pretty women. And it was a new school that had 25 um uh, uh, swimming pools, Olympic-sized swimming pools. Wow. It had a football field, uh, you know, the stadium-sized football field, a baseball field. Uh, it had uh, 25 different gyms. And, you know, we had uh, the first year of the high school that was open, we won a, a national championship in high school. So, and also, you know, uh, you know, we had a lot of, like, uh, like I said, affluent people moving there. And they have soon moved out since then. But during that time, they were moving in. And it was yeah. a, basically a, 
predominantly Jewish neighborhood. So Andre would come up to um, my high school from Charles F. Hughes because we had the pretty girls up there. So <laughs> he would, and I would tell him, I said, yo, you know, the Northeast Bronx, this is the fly shit. This is up to me. This is the, we got the fly bitches. We got the fly drug dealers. We got the fly haircuts. We got the fly <laughs> academia, you know, academic guys who are the, you know, we got everything up here. Where you live at is the South Bronx. That's some bum ass shit. And both agreed at sooner or later at one point, the whole Bronx is not Harlem. And it doesn't have the history that Harlem has. It doesn't have the information that Harlem has. It doesn't yeah. have, you know, the, the, you know, the swag. The money doesn't come through here like that. And so, you know, we took our whole show on the road and we wind up in Harlem. We wind up starting to set up during, uh, in, in Manhattan in Harlem. And he started becoming a MC. And okay. he was part of a group called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, and Mr. Hyde lived on 110th Street on the east side of Harlem. So he he was already in because we needed some Harlem cats to get down with us to officiate. Oh, okay, okay. All right. So then Andre started um, and Alonzo started um, performing at Harlem World and going to Harlem World. And the people at Harlem World, they embraced him because Andre is like a genius from the beginning. Like, you know, he would attract people because... We had, a, like I said, we, it all was a plan. He was the only guy, him and Alonzo and our crew, that wear, wore a suit and a tie at 13 wow. years old. And it was designed to separate them from the crowd because they okay. weren't the best MCs, but they were good. They were good, but they weren't the best MCs. And, you know, you had these other people that were, like, great MCs like Melly Mel and these guys and yeah. Africa Bambada's crew and whatever crew it was. Mm -hmm. But on these guys, we decided and we designed a, a plan where it would separate these guys from everybody. So they became suit and tie rappers mm -hmm. and became the business rappers. That's the, what they wanted to present that we are about business. And Andre was definitely about business and he got right to it. And once he became you know, Dr. Jekyll of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. High. And mm. what was he quickly realized, okay, you know, I've, take, I've taken this thing as far as I can take it. Now, let me get into the business side of it. I don't want to be an MC. I want to I own a record company. Wow. And we, we were in college at that point. We're in Lehman College at that point. Now, Lehman College was a melting pot for talent as well. So I'm leaving Truman High School, which I had all these artists around me and yeah. I was going to clubs. I seen Cool Herb from the beginning. I used to go to the Evolo. I used to go to the Executive Playhouse. I was <laughs> in the beginning. I was there since there was no Puerto Ricans break dancing. It was all black <laughs> guys break dancing. Black music and disco. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and then it, it, when, when we took it from the street, of uh, Kango hats and Adidas sneakers and breakdancing on boxes and took it into the club. That wasn't that wasn't fly to us no more. We wanted to perform for the club. We wanted to be around the fly chicks. We wanted to be around the educated. You know, your 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 professor went to the same club as you. You know what I mean? And then you all 
seeing the top drug dealer there. You also <laughs> seen the top basketball players there. You also seen the top football players. Not really football players. They wasn't in the loop at that time. Yeah. It was really basketball players, you know, and maybe some baseball players. And and these these guys, you know, they made up this this community of music, this community of sports. And Andre was at the forefront of it all. So at that time, we, he's like uh, 19 years old, getting ready to turn 20. We had college, you know, uh, he's like, I gotta make some extra money. And he starts working at WWRL. And this is where this radio station was an AM radio station instead of an FM radio station. This is where Frankie Crocker, Kim Webb, all these guys come out of. They come out of, you know, BK Kirkland, they went on to run WBLS, one of the biggest stations in the country at that time. And Frankie was one of the biggest, you know, um, radio announcers in the world at that time. You know what I mean? And New York, the New York stations were amazing at that time. Frankie Crocker would come up with these catchphrases because he would be hanging around, you know, the Red Parrot at that night or, or Bentley's at that night amongst all these people. So he would get these little catchphrases, words. And, you know, by the way, I'm a wordsmith. So, you know, I made up all the words that people use today, right? Okay. Now. <laughs> and, and so, you know, Andre had his talent. I had my talent. Alonzo was, uh, has his talent. And Kurt Woodley was uh, a part of our crew as well. And I'm gonna explain who these people are down the line. Now, okay. so we are going up to the Rucker Park, you know, Teddy's about 15 years old right now, and we're about 20, 21 years old, and, and we have already designed Uptown Records, and Uptown was based on Uptown the Bronx, because I used to tell them, like, yo, when you come uptown, uptown okay. we, we got all the fly haircuts, we got all the fly girls, we got all the fly drug dealers, we got all the fly cars. <laughs> We got all the fly music. The, you know, we more educated than the rest of these retarded niggas. And and uh, so I used to tell him that all the time. We would argue about it because he would say, when I come uptown, only thing I see is pretty girls in snow. And this <laughs> reminds me of Nebraska. And, <laughs> and I used to be like, no, no, you got to look deeper, baby. This is, we got all the music. We got everything. And so... At that time, we did, and you know, because all the I keep saying drug dealers, and it's not that I'm glorifying it. It's yeah. What I'm doing, giving you a roadway to how we thought, what we were thinking about, how we designed Uptown Records, and the, we had the drug dealers from up our way were in the music. They basically a lot of them. I'm not saying all. Of them. Yeah, they were educated. They were super smart. Um, they were fashion forward. And they were involved with all the new musicians or, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the people in music. And we had to get it in that game. And so we decided, like, we got to start calling somewhere else uptown. And we started calling Harlem uptown. And that's how you got Uptown Records. And that's how you got the cat. The um, cat represents education. It represents a drug dealer. 
<laughs> that's what it represents. It represents the gold chain, the beeper, everything, the Nikes. That 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 represents Uptown at the time, and that's what we thought it would be. That's what we thought it looked like, and that's what we we sold. And so during that time, we we we're coming out of college, and there's this kid named Teddy Riley. We already knew about him, yeah. and by Teddy had already produced the show. And wow. Lottie Dot, right? He produced both of those records. They were smashes. And Dougie Fresh, who had been performing, and him and Andre had became very close in Alonzo in Harlem World, which was a, a club in Harlem that all a lot of these guys, Curtis Blow, Dougie Fresh, yeah. Andre, all these guys uh, were performing at and hanging at and being at. And, you know, we went to all the parties in, in Harlem, the Renaissance Ballroom and all that. And, you know, and, you know, during that time, Hollywood was just coming up. DJ Hollywood and okay. Busy B and Starsky had already been on the scene. And, and, you know, so all this was going on during that time. And all these people, all these talented people were going on. This is like a, the second, almost the second wave of rap because Melly Mel and those guys had already been out. Funky Four Plus or more, and those guys, they already got signed to, um, uh, what, what is the record? Um, what's the name of the record company? Their, their, their catalog is Chess Checkers and Cadet. And it's, um, they had Sugar Hill on there. The Sugar, okay. Hill, the Sugar Hill label, yes. Okay. With Sylvia, Sylvia Rome. And and Joe Joe um, I forgot his last name, but okay. <laughs> and those guys had all, everybody on there that came out first. So they had uh, Jazzy J on there. They had uh, you know Funky Four plus one more, Furious Five, Grandmaster Flash, and Grandmaster Melly Mel, and 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 the Furious Five on there, and uh -oh. you know they. They broke the group up and kept going with Flash and Melly Mel when he made the message, you know. So they had they they had a lot of stuff going on. Like basically every rap group that came from uptown was signed to them. Civil Road back in the day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, so so they and they have a catalog called Chess Checkers and Cadet, which is one of the most extensive catalogs on the planet. Not only because of the, the them signing rap label uh, records, they Sylvia was a writer. She wrote for the moments. She wrote for the stylistics. She sang wow. she made a song called Pillow Talk. She made she made uh, Rod Stewart records. And she, did, wow. she did, and you know she was a uh, not her name is not Sylvia Rome. Excuse me, it's Sylvia Robinson. Oh, not and the not the lecturer Sylvia Rome. Right, it's not Sylvia Rome. Okay. <laughs> Sylvia Robinson and those guys, they had everything. And so here we come, you know, and like I said, we designed the whole uptown, what it was going to look like, talk like, walk like, be like in a club, on the streets, and in, a, in, in, in the front office of MCA. And so we, we, the way we did that is like, you know, okay, how are we supposed to look? Okay, Wynton Marcellus is a good reference. Wynton Marcellus is a good reference for us. The way he dresses. Yeah, the jazz. The way he looks. Yeah. Let's do that. Like, we like the glasses he wears. 
you know, Alonzo, you wear that. Um, Andre, you wear you wear uh, the suspenders, suit and tie. Um, and this is before we were able to afford any type of real suit or suit and tie. We had very $69 suits and cheap shoes too to go with it, but it was a suit nonetheless. So that's what separated them from everybody else. And, and Andre's thinking and my thinking and Alonzo's thinking was, okay, so like, like how do we position this? All right, so we're in a home world where everybody got Kango hats on, Adidas sneakers, Puma sneakers, jerseys, and, and that kind of stuff. And here these guys come in with a suit and tie and point decks <laughs> glasses. And so how do you get respect now? How do you get respect? Mm -hmm. Because when Andre stepped in the room, he was so articulate that he was like E.F. Hutton. And you could have been a serial killer. You was going to listen to him. Mm -hmm. And whatever he wanted to sell or have you buy, you definitely was going to buy it. Wow. And that was his whole approach to life because he was so ahead of the curve and not on his own because of the people that was around him that helped mm -hmm. him carve out the blueprint. The people like myself, the people like Kurt Woodley, the people like um, the staff at Uptown, you know, uh, these people helped design his image and put him at the forefront of everything because he was the one that was able to sell the idea, the dream, and the legacy better than anybody. And you have to let the best go first. Yeah. And uh, so we, uh, we start coming out of um, Lehman College. We start uptown. I might be getting paid $10 a week, you know, Andre is getting checks to produce Heavy D and the boys and the Uptown crew. So we get Teddy Riley, basically get in a situation where Teddy Riley sides with us over some of his managers and some of the people that, you know, really dangerous people at the time. And uh, we took Teddy from them and was able to get some music out of him, some incredible music out of him. And the music was called New Jack Swing. Mm -hmm. And Andre coined the phrase New Jack Swing. Andre came up with the name New Jack Swing. Teddy came up with the music. But mm -hmm. Andre created, told him what the sound would sound like, told him how it should look, how it should feel, where, where this feeling comes from, and Teddy was able to make it, mm. like, like, you know. But, but uh, oh, the, the question I had then was the um, getting to opt, um, MCA. How how did you actually manage to even get in the doors of MCA? Because okay, I'm, that... I'm that. I'm oh, you're gonna get that. that. Okay. Yeah. okay. This is this is a this is a journey right here. I'm taking oh, you on. Okay. I'm taking you on a journey, yeah. and so going back to Lehman College. Like I said, we got people that are in the music business that was in Lehman College at that time. Okay. So we have uh, Michael Haley, who worked at MCA, which is now Universal. Yeah. He was head of R&B promotion, Black promotions. All right. 
and we have another young lady, her name was Kathy Moore. There's about a hundred of us going to Lehman at the time. Wow. Music, right, just Kid and Play went to, uh, what Kid from Kid and Play went there, the creator MTV went there. You know, mm. there's just, all kinds of people was just there, you know what mm. I mean? We yeah. were in some called student government. Okay. So student government, we were had, Andre was the first guy out of my crew to be involved with student government and the head of the entertainment program. So the entertainment program had a budget. And in that budget, we bought Miles Davis there to our to our school, 2,500 seat theater. We bought Prince there. Wow, Prince. We bought The Temptations there. We bought James Brown there. We bought- James just, Brown. Yeah, we bought uh, the Cold Chilling Crew, uh, Big Daddy Kane, uh, Roxanne Shantae, MC Shan, and we bought them there. We bought Eric B and Rakim there. We bought everybody there. And Andre was a rapper at the time, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. High. So he yeah. got to perform with them. So he meets Gerald Busby one day, performing at a local um, you know, club. And Gerald sees him, and Andre goes to him and starts selling him the vision of Uptown. And at that time, Gerald Busby was the head of MCA Black Music, okay. the most powerful man in the game yeah. at that Because, you know, he had Luke, he had uh, Jody Watley, uh, he had New Edition, he yeah. had just all, everybody. They had everybody. And, but their music, was starting to become stale. Okay. It wasn't that it was good. They just didn't have nothing new. You know, he had men condition. When Teddy came and Andre came with New Jack Swing, that was a new music. And so when he presented the Uptown crew to Gerald, we had Teddy Riley on that album. We had Marley Ma on that album, who was a new producer at that time. And you know, I don't know if you know who Marley Ma is. Marley Ma. Oh, yeah, yeah. A big man of LL. Yeah, yeah, no, Marley. Right. LL, Big Daddy Kane, yeah. you know, uh, just, you know. So him and Teddy coming out of the streets were two of the biggest producers on the planet. I mean, in terms of hip hop producers. Yeah. And so, um, Gerald listens to the album, says, you know, this is okay. You know, uh, it's great. <laughs> gave him gave him a little deal for the album, a compilation album. Okay. He said, if something works off this album, I'll give you a uh, production deal. And so what happened is we had the Uptown crew, but we put uh, Teddy and Molly and Eddie F did Mr. Big Stuff. Okay, that's from Heavy D, okay. Right, so that put Heavy, gave Heavy a top 10 record on R&B charts. That top 10 record opened the door for Gerald to say, I'm not only going to give you a production deal, I'm going to give you a distribution deal, label deal. Wow. And, it, and Andre, like I said, all you have to do is give him an opportunity to present his music present whatever it is he's selling and you're gonna buy it and next thing you know 
Andre has a distribution deal, deal with. And then after that, Teddy started producing Heavy's album. We, the first album came out, we went double platinum. Wow. Okay. Um, most of the Uptown crew at that time, they didn't make it to, you know, the second single or, or even a lead single. So they got basically um, let go. And Heavy was the one that we focused on. And Heavy had a, a very, very talented individual in his crew that would do all the background singing. And his name was Albie Shaw. Okay. So they were giving us some resistance at MCA about giving us autonomy to let us do our thing. So they didn't want to sign Al B. Shore. So we took Al B. Shore to Warner Brothers. Soon after that, Quincy Jones had this contest while he was signing called the Sony Innovator Award. Innovator Awards. And we won. And after that, Al's album got completed and he came out with Night and Day and blew up like Michael Jackson. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was... Um... A groundbreaking album that was, I mean, I was in Africa right. at the time. and but, but you said MCA, you presented it to MCA and they said no? They, they said no. They said no. They said no. Because you got to remember, this new Jack Swing thing was new to them. They was almost scared of it. You know, they couldn't believe that this kid, Teddy Riley, could be making these hits like this. So after Al, now Al's first album was a mixture of Teddy, Kyle West, and Al, and Timmy Gatlin singing the lead vocals with, with Al's vocals, and vice versa with the Guy album. So when we complete the Guy album, that blows up and does two, three million albums. And so now they're listening to everything Andre said. Okay. okay. <laughs> so now him and, and Gerald are bosom buddies and anything we want to sign, we can sign. Then, uh, you know, Gerald takes him to Lou Wasserman and Sid Schoenberg. Who was he? They were the heads of Universal Pictures. They were the head of Universal Pictures, film and TV, music, and anything else, you know, and... I've left you. No, I'm here. I can see. All right. So they were the head of the, the, the film companies and music companies at MCA, when MCA was MCA. And they were uh, two guys that if they took you under their wing, they could put you in a very powerful position. So once Gerald took them to MCA, they go to Andre and say, listen, Andre sells them on film that he has. <laughs> and the music so they, they 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 take it and not only do they give them a deal that was worth 50 million dollars at that time and this is uh in 88 90 yeah. not only did they give them a deal they gave us office on the lot of universal gave us a television production company on the lot offices and everything like that and so we get these offers, we make our first film, 
it was going to be house party. Oh. If you know, in house party, most of the artists that are in there, yeah, like are from uptown. Chill, Bilal, and B. They uh, they're all in there, and uh, Groove B Chill. So um, they're in there. One is the DJ. The other two are acting in it. And mm -hmm. that was a story originally written by Andre Harrell and and um, and, and, and Alonzo Alonzo Brown. That was that's Mr. High, right? So we we we're getting ready to do that film with the Hudland Brothers. Something happens. The Hutton brothers wind up with the film. Andre and Alonzo in Uptown is out. Okay, so we move on. And we come out with the second Heavy D album. Now, on this album, we got Eddie F producing, which he was producing since the beginning. And he's the DJ for Heavy D and the Boys. Yeah. We got Teddy Riley who's producing. And I don't think Molly was a part of the second album because we had some conflict with him. Okay. And so he's out of the Uptown crew. He's going off to do his cold chilling thing and becomes very successful. Molly Marl is one of the greatest producers ever, yeah. you know? And so he's not involved with this, but it's us and, and Teddy Riley. And then Teddy brings this group called Guy into the loop. Like I said, the guy. And so Aaron is singing on some of uh, Teddy's uh, uh, production on Heavy. And then we put out the second album and we go triple platinum again. And so now Andre is growing in power and the Uptown staff is growing in power. Now we have some sort of power in the building. And then uh, as we put out this album, we started developing this film called Strictly Business. Okay. And this film has Holly Berry in it and yeah. in it from the beginning, you know, and uh, so I believe Chris Rock was in it. And so we put out this film that does great. So they bring us back to the table to rene renegotiate a new deal for even more money with staff all over the country and basically giving us our own arm to operate, you know, as our own, like, you know, giving us autonomy to own entity. And um, so we, uh, we on a roll at this point right now. And it just gets better after that, the, you know, um, Guy, album did well the first time around Al Al's vocals were uh blended with Timmy Gatlin's vocals Al did some writing on that they did some writing on Al's uh, first album their out their first album that came out did at least two million albums uh Al's album did three million albums and you know we are doing great now we all working together everything is lovely and everything is lovely until the money comes. <laughs> everything, we all family. But when the money came, 
then the energy changed. You know, everybody mm -hmm. wanted to be the boss. And instead of being managed, now everybody wants to be their own manager, their own production company, their own label. And, you know, that's when people were getting record labels. All you had to do was get a one hit record. The next thing you know, a record label is giving you a label. Wow. You know? But everybody's not capable. Everybody's not capable of, 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 of operating a record label and, mm -hmm. and making a record. And so uh, the, the thing is, is that so the confusion starts to come in, but we're still on the roll. We're still on the roll. Now we begin to sign new acts. Father MC. Father MC comes in. He does a gold platinum album right out of the box. Mm. So, you know, and we got Teddy producing him. And then we have other artists involved with him. He, Father's the first one that introduced Jodeci on his records mm. and Devontae Swing and Mary J. Mm. on his records. They, that's how they got introduced into the music business, in the game. And so, and the people at that time that were doing the A&R work was Kurt Woodley. And he's a prodigy in itself. And Kurt Woodley is responsible for bringing Mary J. Blige to Uptown Records. Mm. Kurt Woodley is responsible for in the beginning, being in the studio with Josie. Kurt Woodley is responsible for being in the studio and on Heavy D's album. Kurt Woodley is responsible after he left Uptown uh, for Cypress Hill and the Fugees. Wow. So Kurt Woodley is something special in himself. And this is the type of talent and the people that we had around us. And, you know, so as we move on, Alonzo and, and Andre, like I said, was a part of Strictly Business and writing it. And then we have, we're introducing Jodeci. And Devontae is learning under Eddie F, I'll be sure. And Teddy was starting to move away from us. So I don't know how much he learned from Teddy, but I'll be sure and Eddie F had a lot to do with his progression as a producer. And he's one of the greatest producers mm -hmm. that have ever come out of Uptown Records. And so you got uh, Devante emerging as one of the greatest producers and a great producer. And the Jodeci album, he basically produced on his own with some guidance from Al B. Shore and Eddie F. But once he was able to stand up and fly on his own, he did it well. He did it well. And, and he, uh, he was uh, amazing at it. And he produced the Jodeci album. When we put that Jodeci album out, half of it was A&R by Kurt, but the rest was A&R by a young man by the name of Puff Daddy, who came into Uptown as an intern. Once Puffy put his seasoning on it, on the first two of the first two Jodeci records, and he created. We already had the remix, but he came and perfected it. Oh. He came and made the remix like it was a brand new record. He changed the whole record and made it a whole new record. 
Like we were able to just make remixes before and 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 but it it was very similar to the same record that was put out before. Yeah. I can't see you for some reason. Puffy was able to come out and make it a brand new record, a whole nother record. And hold on for a second. No. You can see me? Yeah, I can see you. Yeah. All right, that's all that matters then. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so Puffy was able to make it a brand new record, like I said. Yeah. And create the new form of making the, the remix. And those those remixes sold just as much as the single. Wow. And definitely the album, if not more. So, and, you know, like I said, we were selling 3 million albums on Jodeci. And so, you know, he have a remix that was sold like 5 million copies, 6 million copies on a single. And, and so, you know, needless to say, Puffy became a superstar at Uptown. An uncontrollable one, but a star <laughs> nonetheless. Was he still an intern or has he been given he's that intern, He's the intern moving into the, uh, moving into being an A&R. And there's about 10 different people taking credit for Puffy even coming to Uptown. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another 10 people taking credit for bringing Puffy in the office to Andre and, and 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 Andre going, get this little black nigga out of my office, man. I don't want to hear that. And, you know, um, I'm one of them. And because uh, he was one of my, he was my intern as well. And uh, he was something special. Wow. Everything he did, he got done quickly. Wow. Every, if you asked him to go to the store, he was back in one second. If you asked him to make a record, he had it done. And he was asking for his opportunity. When he when he got his opportunity, he nailed it. He nailed it because he would surround himself with the best people and the knowledge that we had already have given him. He took that and and really studied it and understood stood it better than anybody, any intern. And we had great interns. We had interns that have come out of Uptown Records and people that have worked there that are billionaires. Wow. So, and it's not just him. And he's definitely one of them. And he's something special from the beginning. Everything he brought to the table, even the the the, the bad attitude, good attitude, <laughs> it, was, it was worth it because he put us on the map. And when Jodeci, after Jodeci, Kurt Woodley, and Andre had a disagreement and Kurt had got let go or left, whatever the story is really. Um, but he was managing Mary. Puffy comes in, starts producing Mary and the rest is history. Kurt might've produced three or four records on the first album, but the rest of it was, was Puffy. And after that, him and, Mary had a musical marriage that has lasted till today. Mm. It's incredible. And I'll tell you this right now, like Mary and Puff, they believed in one another to the point where they are connected forever. They have might as well been married 
mm-hmm. musically, and they're connected forever. He's involved in everything she does because he's the primary reason for her success. So, so you guys gave him that much freedom to just to, to do gave, the album? Yes. After the success of Jodeci, we gave him that much freedom to do the album. And boy, did he take the freedom. And <laughs> boy. And, you know, and run with it. But it was the right thing to do and it was worth it. And he took it to the point where it got to the point where he was unmanageable. And it was, it couldn't be, you could, it couldn't be two kings. Andre was uptown. And Were people Puffy looking was, at Puffy as as he's the the golden child, or what, what was that? What he was the golden was? child, and he was the young uh, lion ready to come come for the throne. Okay, okay. You know what I mean? He was the young lion coming for the throne, <laughs> and, and just like a lion too, savage, <laughs> savage, and uh, so. He was coming for the throne, and he was going to achieve it, too. And um, But he got to the point where he was unmanageable to us, and he had to go. So Andre started a company. I mean, he started a company, Bad Boy, which was under Uptown. It was a, a production deal, a label deal under Uptown. Because okay. at that point, we could do label deals. And... Uh, he had his first two acts, Biggie Smalls and, and Craig Mack was on mm-hmm. Uptown Records. First two records, one Craig Mack's record, uh, I think Flavor in Your Ear, and two of Biggie Smalls' records, Party and Bullshit, and another record. And he bought Biggie, and that blew up. And then he was totally uncontrollable. And then he uh... got fired. Then he got fired. Yeah. Because he was uncontrollable. So... Puffy leaves. Uh, I'm asking Andre, don't, don't, don't let Puffy leave. Mark Siegel's, Mark Siegel. I said Mark Siegel's, like he is a leading bird. But <laughs> Mark Siegel was the one that was encouraging Puff. I mean Andre to fire Puff and telling Andre because Mark couldn't control Puff at all. Puff didn't have absolutely no respect for him whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Because he was the white man and and he was coming in to break up what we had. And and he he was adamant about making letting Puff go. More so than yourself and Andre. More so me and Puff didn't get along at all. I didn't want him to leave because I didn't want the hits to go, because I was the head of promotion. <laughs> And marketing, I didn't want no, I, I wanted the hits to stay. I didn't care if he liked me or I liked him. None of that shit mattered to me. I just wanted to stay in our glory. And yeah. we had hit after hit after hit after hit with him there. With him <laughs> gone, we still had hits, but it wasn't the magnitude of hits that we had while he was there. What was he and, doing differently, though? Because what, what did he do? That his talent. His talent and what he, who he learned from. He learned from Eddie F. He learned from Devontae. He learned from uh, Teddy. He learned, he would learn. And then he put together his own crew. And actually, the, you know, 
the proof is in the pudding, they were better. They were better. So when somebody's a genius at what they do and they're smarter than you, the right thing for you to do is to try to manage that for as mm. long as possible because yeah. you can't control it. You have to try to manage that. And I'm going to tell you this. When you have an artist, right, the first record you make with an artist, you're the boss, meaning the production company, the distribution company. You're mm -hmm. the boss. The second time record that comes, you guys are equal. The third hit record, you're getting fired. <laughs> so they take over. They don't need you. They need you for. They got everybody coming at them. Every president, every person is telling them what they could do better for them and offering them more money. So you had a company getting $175,000 a year and Clive Davis comes and says, I'll give you $75 million to start your company. I'll give you $75 million. I'll give you $75 million. It don't make no difference to me. I know what you're going to roll out over here. You know, so we allow that situation to get away from us because we weren't smart enough. The egos got involved. Mm. Egos got involved, you know. And in this game of entertainment, because I was, I'm in music. I do music through film right now, and I'm in the film business right now. There's no ego. You got to get to work. And you're dealing with brilliant people and creative people. And a lot of them are smarter than you. And how do you outsmart someone that's smarter than you? Mm. You have to yeah. try to And your ego can't, and your pride and all that bullshit can't mm. be in the, you know, they, Puffy has said things to me that made me want to kill him. <laughs> But not to the point where I want to see the hits go. <laughs> I don't want the hits to go anywhere. Yeah. You know, and the thing about it is we're talented. Andre is very talented, creatively. I'm, like I said, I'm a wordsmith. I made up words that were on records that I should have got publishing for. <laughs> and it's true I had every single one of my artists including Puffy talking like me, walking, dressing everything and that's just the truth and, and that's why I can say it freely but none of that matters when they're able to take your gift and apply it to their gift yeah. and make it bigger Yeah, and make it bigger so what you have to do is because Andre has a gift that nobody has. And then Puffy has a gift that nobody has. And I have a gift that nobody has. But it's not, you know, Puffy got the total package. Mm. And that's why he's a billionaire right now. And I'm over <laughs> there borrowing some money. I'm trying to phrase things properly so that I don't upset him at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, but but during those times, I know you said you were ahead of promotion. So, because when he left town, it was 
big industry news. I mean, everyone we heard, oh, Poppy is gone. Um, but then within the label, did it feel like something bad, big had happened? Or did you think, well, we've got that, we've got Jodeci, we've got Mary, we've got Heavy, we still have all the acts. So what was it we like? Still had, we still had the acts, but Puffy had, had total control over Mary at that time. So she was on Uptown, but he was making it seem like she was on Bad Boy. You see what I mean? And then he had, he was building his roster off. Mary had helped platform Biggie, which didn't need much platforming, but she was a part of a lot of songs that Biggie were on. And it was more like she was a bad boy artist. You know what wow. I mean? And, I, and and when Puffy left, he left with a lot of my promotional staff, my marketing staff. He left with a lot of people that wow. were working with him at Uptown. You know what I mean? And then okay. And he, he made a real power move. And okay. wow. also, you know, when he left, we didn't stutter step at all. We came out with Soul For Real, Lost Boys, but they ain't, they ain't, they ain't Biggie Small. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Then we started having problems with Jodeci, with Suge Knight. You know, he started managing them, and it was hectic. And then, then Mary and KC broke up. And Suge Knight was in the middle of it, wanting uh, publishing from the first record ever at Uptown, not even from Jodeci's record, just whatever. He, he came with his bullshit. And, and you know, we had went through three or four different gangsters like that. You know, Gene Griffin had came with, with Ted, and we had issues with Gene. So, you know, we were accustomed to that type of <laughs> And, you know, we from Uptown anyway. So, you know, we, we had to leave Harlem to move to Fourth Avenue and Warren Street in Brooklyn because we were gonna have problems just about Teddy Riley. So we've been through this more than once, trust me. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, loads of people sent questions, but how did that, I mean, what was more disruptive? The Was it the Gene Griffin sort of pull with, with the whole guy and Timmy Gatlin stuff? Was that very disruptive or was it the Jodie yeah. C. Mary? Which one was? Which one do you think really? I impacted? think both of them. I think both of them caused a major threat. At so we thought, not really, but we were used to being in the entertainment business where we had avoided any of that gangster shit. You know, we didn't have those guys. They didn't get invited to our parties. <laughs> they, they didn't get invited to absolutely anything. You know what I mean? So even when we did major deals and they would come and be like, yo, you know, I can make your deal better. Let me negotiate. Absolutely not. And I, like I said, like when you're dealing with a genius and you come in with some street bullshit, you're not on his level. He's dealing several rails above you. Yeah. You know, Andre, and I'm speaking about Andre. And I'm yeah. not even speaking about me. He's, he, like I said, we would come in uh, a club or um, a business meeting with, you know, gangster managers and shit like that. Yeah. And when Andre spoke, he's speaking several rails above them. They, they don't even have nothing to say when he's speaking. Yeah. You know, they, they're not on his level. Like, and so when you were a really smart person, and you're not on that level. There's nothing you can say. You got to sit there and learn. That's yeah. the smartest thing to do is be quiet. 
And that's one of the things that he taught me, like, you know, don't feel uncomfortable about not knowing something. Just shut the fuck up and listen and learn. Look, listen, and learn. But you guys grew up as friends and he was still being a mentor, even though you guys grew up as- We were, we were like, both, both of us was like each other's father. That's like my son and I'm like his son, you know? And that's the best way I could uh, um, explain it with because I knew him since I was nine years old. Yeah. And he was my cousin Gabe's best friend. And my cousin Gabe could dance like Michael Jackson, sing like Michael Jackson. And at that time, he, you know, we, it just didn't work out with him. And me and Andre wound up becoming best friends. So when we would go on the road, when he was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Alonzo would be in the room getting dolled up, looking pretty, and me and Andre would be downstairs taking care of the business. And mm -hmm. I would be learning from Andre in terms of business because it was a, a natural thing, innate with him, with business and public speaking and speaking in general. Yeah, you know, yeah. He's, at a, he's at another level. And mm -hmm. this is where Puffy learns everything he knows. And it comes from not only Andre, but me and all the people at Uptown, mm -hmm. because Andre surrounded him with all these people to yeah. make sure that he got educated up where he could, and he took it to another level. You know, it's not yeah. like, no, I'm not talking like we're the sole reason that he's successful. He was going to be successful. Well, I don't know if he was going to be this successful if he didn't know what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, we set him on that path yeah. but, and introduced him to the people that he needed to know and surrounded him with the people that he needed. And like I said, Andre didn't accomplish this all on his own. He wasn't this genius guy that didn't have, that didn't have anybody giving him different information every day. Mm -hmm. He was smart enough to surround himself with people that were specialists at what they did. You know yeah. what I mean? How did you get this, the, how did your role get decided when you guys started Uptown? Well, did Andre you... picked it out for me. Okay. Andre, Andre was like, I said, oh no, Andre, I'm gonna be an a &R. He said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. What I want you to do is I want you to go on the road and sell these records. I want you to be the one that go in the record store. You know, I want you to be the one that sits at the, the, the meeting at UMCA and explain what the blueprint is of Uptown and how it's going to roll out, how the music is going to roll out and how we're going to sell it. Because we talk about our blueprint is totally different than theirs. They have a very, you know, traditional way of working records. Yeah. My thing was we taking it straight to the streets. Mm. We're taking it straight to the streets with street people. With, and if you were even able to come to one of our parties or anything, that's because you was fly. And it didn't matter what you was, drug dealer, gangster, uh, uh, college professor, uh, basketball player, uh, football player, a boxer, you know, whatever. You you was invited. Donald Trump, you know what I mean? We had <laughs> Bruce Willis at our parties, you know. Okay. We created the white, Andre created the white parties. I'm not gonna say we created. Andre, it was Andre's idea. Andre was the one who brought Russell Simmons and everybody to the Hamptons because we were going to Martha's Vineyard at first. 
You know what I mean? And Andre was like, no, this is what the great Gatsby, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to look like. This is how the parties need to look. And this is, you know, but everything, the great Gatsby. You know what I mean? That was okay. Andre. Now, some of the questions that some of the, uh, the people put in, knowing that you were coming on, was um, how did MCA come to call them the black music market? Because I know you mentioned they had a new edition, and, 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 um, but then when they got uptown, it was almost as if pretty much, I actually used to think of MCA was a black label. But, you know, what do you think they did differently to, to sort of corner the market it, in those? They weren't, they weren't a black label. They were never a black label. I can tell you that right now. They had country, <laughs> music, they had country music stars selling 21 million albums at the wow. time. Black, black music was selling one, two, three million. If you ever reached 10 million, which we never did on one artist, Puffy sold 10 million albums before on himself. Hmm. Biggie sold 10 million albums. Puff, we never did that. And MCA was never the the black music label. We had a black music division headed up by Gerald Busby. Lou Silas was one of the um ARs, the head of AR on the uh, on the West Coast. And Timmy Registered was the AR on the East Coast, head of mm -hmm. AR. So, but quite frankly, you know, they didn't make the kind of music we made. Our shit was new. We like we like Motown. Mm. We like Motown, and we got bigger than all of that, you know. Um, and Jody Watley was huge, and Loose Ends was huge, and they had huge records. You know what they didn't have? They didn't have a group of artists that made lifestyle records, that made records that represented a company. And the representation is like you look like, walk like, talk like Uptown. And the thing is that if you talk to Al B. Shore, he'll tell you. He'll tell you what what I mean by saying that. If you talk to Devante or or you know any of these artists, and even Mary and Puffs, they'll tell you what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. We created a lifestyle in black music that went on to pass it on to Bad Boy, Bad Boy passed it on to Rockefeller, and you know so on and so on. There yeah. wouldn't even be most of these artists that are still going today, Rodney Jerkins, a lot of these producers or whatever, their influence was uptown. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you guys definitely, I mean, and I and I would assume that the sound, say when New Edition uh, so Belbeth DeVoe and, right. and and all that based on what you guys were doing, they start to change their their, their sounds and everything. Yeah, they had to come to, to, you know, when we're doing New Jack and then, you know, when we're doing hip hop and R&B soul. Yeah. And then, you know, Grown and Sexy. And we did that all the way. We kept having hit records. It wasn't that we weren't having hits. Like I said, we had So For Real. We had um, Father MC was still there. He was still doing gold, platinum albums. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, uh, Lost yeah, Boys. Yeah, Manifa. Monifa, that that's when Heavy took over. Okay, and when he when my he, girl, she was dope. She was dope. Like oh yeah, Heavy, Heavy, we we left Heavy and we started uh, Harrell Entertainment, uh, New America. 
we left Uptown and no, excuse me, we left Uptown, we went to Motown, which was a wrong move for us. Yeah, now, so I wanted to get to that because I, I, I remember, because I used to read the Billboard magazines and I remember seeing from Uptown to Motown and I saw this little right. cigar and a chair and everything, the promotion. Right. And but like, Andre lost his mind at that point. Right there. I know. was like, and, and I was like, why? I mean, because, you know, it was almost like going from a, taking your Ferrari and going into an old tanker because Motown had that was established, but it wasn't, it might have been more money and stuff, but it just felt right. like you had to change too much stuff. And I don't know how much was he influenced by, wow, look what Puffy's doing so quickly. Maybe I need to move up. But what was the decision? How did that whole come about? And that played a part of that played a part of it. I mean, the Motown deal came. We were successful, but we were locked in the MCA. They they had a major, probably the majority share of Uptown, you know, a lot of it. And uh, basically, we had ran our course at Uptown. And Andre made the wrong decision of going to Motown because he, he thought about the legacy that was there. And he thought that he could bring some new energy there. But, you know, this is all politics. You get over there, you got to work the politics out first before you could even have a clean slate to operate. We're not, we, we didn't have the autonomy to move around like we did at Uptown, but we had more money to move around. One, we didn't have the acts to support that move. We had to start still working Stevie Wonder. There's no disrespect to him. Yeah. Diana Ross and all that kind of stuff. And that, wasn't and our, that wasn't even our genre of music. That We didn't even, we listened to that music like we listened to Marvin Gaye. You know, we, you know it was incredible. It's the best music on the planet, but it ain't our music. And it's just like with these kids today. You know, a lot of this uh, mumble rap and whatever other kind of track, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, we wouldn't be able to work that properly. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. you got to be there. You got to be a part of it. You got to you gotta live it. And that's why we were so successful because we were a part of it and we were living it. We lived mm -hmm. the lyrics. We lived the creative process. It was like a, a, a everything. I'll tell you this. Even the worst days at Uptown was a party. Wow. The worst days was the best days. After Gene Griffin slapped the shit out of Andre, we went out, <laughs> we, went out we went out and partied like it was 1999. Okay. You, now, I, I saw Andre's one of his last interviews with Kenny Burns, um, mm -hmm. and he, he mentioned how he was in his, in his an apartment with his girl, and the bell, Gene comes to the house at like six in the morning or five in the morning, and says, right. I want to publish it, and Teddy's outside in the car. And you know he just you know signs it over to, but you know we heard this kind that, of thing. that ain't true. That ain't that ain't true. I mean, he signed a portion of it over, and okay. he, when he came to his house, Andre, like I said, when you're dealing with smart guys, you got to remember they're tougher than any gangster that has ever lived. A smart guy, somebody that's super intelligent, yeah, will outsmart you and belittle you at the same time because that smack that he gave Andre that day in that office was the worst thing he might as well resided to doing construction after that 
Okay. And then when they came to his house with Teddy in the car, yeah. Yo, I want the publishing from this, this, this. Got it. What else you need? Uh, the publishing from this, this, and this. Got it. What else you need? The publishing from that, that, and that. Got it. As soon as I get in the office, first thing in the morning, sign everything over to you. Got in the office, called the lawyers. Fuck them. That's what. <laughs> Fuck him. Throw me out a window next time, nigga. <laughs> I'm not giving up shit until it's the right way to give it up. And if you look at it, they say that Teddy and them went off and started their own record label. Look at every album that they put out at Universal. It says Uptown Imprint, small Uptown Imprint. You know what that means? Uptown is getting paid. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm just saying, I learned that dealing in the record business, these guys don't necessarily, they don't have to be tough. You just have to be smart. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but how much did the Suge Knight thing affect, influence the move to Uptown? The whole sense where you felt, well, Puffy has gone, Mary and Jodeci were looking like they were going over to Suge. How much did I feel like, we're losing a family, let's just take the offer and go. What, what? You know, we just kept bringing in new artists, you know, but, you know, we were definitely, uh, we've definitely been, uh, we were shook. It was disturbing. It was, um, it was terrible. It was, uh, it was terrible. And, and Shook was a imposing, threatening guy, but you know, like, None of that shit bothered us. None of we what none of that mattered. Because at the end of the day, when you look at it, what actually happened to anybody? Nothing. He's the one in jail. At the end of the day, I mean, Andre passed away, yeah. but when all of it was over, you weren't even on anybody's mind. And what he did to Jodeci is basically disrupt their creative flow and destroy them. Yeah, because they they um they didn't recover after 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 the the, the style and, went off. Yeah. And Mary left with, with Puff. You know what I mean? Mary went off and started making her own records with Puff and without Puff. Yeah. When the decision came for when up the Motown opportunity came how, did you guys have a discussion and say, yep, let's go? Or did you think it weighed over? How, what was it for both of Andre, you? Andre wanted to go because he thought that, you know, MCA had a noose around his neck. But Universal is MCA. So it was a bad move to go to Motown. And Mark Siegel, of course, was like, yeah, we should go. You know what I mean? Because he don't really care about the... <laughs> <laughs> the label he cares about. <laughs> and, you know, Andre's looking at it like, you know, I don't want to be here no more. I don't, I don't want to be here no more. But he wasn't thinking clearly. And people had told him. Everybody told him. A lot of people had told him. But he wasn't listening because they had to check in his face. And it was a way he thought that he could start anew, fresh, 
but he went, like you said, to an old car. He went from a fresh, brand new Ferrari yeah. to an old tanker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was devastated. We went, we went, yeah, we went. I mean, yeah. it was, it was whack. It was whack from the beginning. Like it's just the whole communication because they finally had total control of him, and that's what they wanted to do. And they want him to start working on the temptations and this, that, and that. I think, come on. <laughs> no, and you know, you're right. I mean, and, and that's the one thing about, yeah, they did have the legacy artist, but he, he was used to bringing in the new from the streets. Right. And, that's what and because did. of the new and from the streets, when I went to radio, I didn't have to say nothing. They just had to see that uptown yeah. imprint yeah. and they would put it on and it's gone. Yeah. And I think, you see, you guys started something that everyone else did. So when you look at Cash Money, No Limits, and um, Bad Boy, um, The Face, they looked at the imprint and it's like, oh, this is a new artist from The Face or Cash Money or Murder, Inc. Before that, you know, no one really thought, oh, there's a new MCA act. Maybe some of the radio stations, but the public didn't know. But when, you know, Uptown had the cats and had, like, the artists were all under that banner. And I think as fans, we kind of associated Uptown with a style of music and we bought into that. And I think everyone else followed that blueprint. But I think going to Motown, it, it had its legacy stuff back in the 60s and, and maybe 70s. But by the, by the 90s, I mean, they didn't really, I don't know who, I mean, they had Today and they had Basic Black with Gene Griffin, but they right. really didn't and, explode. And that was Gerald Busby had went to Motown and it hurt his legacy. You know what I mean? I mean, he had hit records. He had Johnny Grill, Jill, excuse me, Johnny Gill, <laughs> yeah. Basic Black, and, and Today. But they weren't no breakthrough acts. They weren't no, you know, I mean, and I love Big Bub and, you know, but they 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 weren't about that music. That's why they couldn't. And Gene Griffin wasn't about that music. He didn't know no. Teddy was the hit. Teddy was the hit. And by that time, Teddy was... I'm not saying he's fading because he did Michael Jackson's album. Mm. And so he was incredible. But he wasn't making those street records. He wasn't making those Devontae swing records. Yeah. He wasn't making those puff down. He wasn't, he wasn't the man no more like he was during the new Jack Swing era. Yeah. I mean, but, he wasn't the man until he made those Michael Jackson records. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That takes it to yeah. another level. But then right. So when someone asked the question, after Gerald Busby moved, it seemed like MCA didn't support Uptown. How come? They did. I mean, we they were, because we were rolling over them. We were, everything was going. And they didn't want us to go to pop radio. They didn't want us to do pop, you know, anything that had to do with pop that would take our records to the next level. They tried to hold us back. And it was a constant fight. With them okay. trying to pull us back, telling us that we should just stay in this black music category. First of all, I wasn't listening to anybody. I wasn't listening to Andre or nobody else. When I went to go radio or anywhere else, I went wherever I wanted to. You know what I mean? And 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 it would cause a major problem. But, I would, but I would they're be making a, money though. Aren't they making money? But, if but they you know, you got to understand the bureaucratic bullshit that goes on. People usually at a record company are trying to protect their job because they're out of touch. They know they're out of touch. And here comes this new company 
fresh with fire. And they can't, if they let you out of the cage, you know, you can't control. It's like Puffy. You can't control them. Okay. You can't control them. Like, and now the spotlight is on you. The spotlight is on you to like, what are you really doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. These guys, we're holding these guys back and they're still going quadruple platinum. But now, when, yeah, we got Jody Watley and she's doing a million. We got whoever we got, they're doing a million. 500,000. These guys come out with a new group even after Puffy leaves and they're like Michael Jackson, so for real. And they do two million albums. Heavy D's group do two million albums right out of the rip. Mm. Because we got relationships on the street that they don't have with producers. That's some music is on the streets. It yeah. develops. You get your swag. You get your fucking creative flow from the streets, from the people that you're interacting with. For like the dude that is coming from the basketball court, and he got a certain kind of sneakers on, or the guy that is is, is a drug dealer that got a bow tie and a blazer on, but he's hiding the fact that he's a drug dealer. Or, you know, the uh, uh, college professor that works at CUNY or uh, whatever that likes to go to the nightclubs and get with the chicks and buy champagne, you know. Uh, and But he's, he's you're in his class on Monday morning. But all these things intertwine together. The nightclub owners, you know, the it's just everything. It's on the streets. Like, you got to be outside for that. You can't be up in Beverly Hills or in Universal in Hollywood somewhere and be up on a hill uh, making those kind of records. No, you're gonna make damn near classic, traditional records that are good, but they don't have no feeling and there's yeah. no pulse and there's no drive to, to bring it all together as a, a, a company, as a representation, as a crew, you know, as, as, as you know, they, everybody, in your crew, you got a hundred people working for you. They all walk, talk, look alike damn near, and they're pushing your vision constantly. Yeah. The artists look like you, they talk like you, the, mm. the staff looks like you, they talk like you, and the staff is more uh, uh, stars than the, more of a star, more stars than the artists are. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah, they had, yeah, I mean, that just became, the executives became big stars, and I think Shug and I presented that when he said, your executive is dancing on your records and stuff. But um, but the, the question that, that I had, because I've got a lot of questions, but I wanted to find out about um, you, you've, um, when Gerald Busby goes to Uptown and uh, Motown, then is it after he left is when the opportunity came for Andre? Right. Okay. And you decided, yep, I'm coming with you, or you didn't think, well, let me stay and take over um, Uptown? Well, I, I wasn't offered it. Uh, Heavy was offered. Puffy had left. Heavy was offered Uptown. And Heavy wanted me to come with him to Uptown, but my loyalty to Andre, I was never going to not be with Andre. Okay. Hello. I was never... Not going to, I'm wherever he was going, I was going, you know, and that's how it goes, you know. Um, even till today, before he passed away, you know, I talked to him the, the day before he passed away. And 
whenever I, because I, I work in California. I lived in New York, but I work yeah. in California. So, you know, I work with the Hughes brothers. Okay. And, yeah. and I work. I work with uh, Alan Hughes in particular, and uh, so I'm out there and we're shooting a film. Which I'm right now. I'm doing the uh, Tupac in a Feeny doc, bio doc right now. Wow. And we are just coming off of the Defiant Ones, the story of Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. Won a Grammy for that. Oh, okay. So, so that you're, doing a, you're doing a movie and filming. Right. And we're moving into getting ready to do Arnold Schwarzenegger's documentary right now as I speak. Wow. So I got all that going on. But I'm talking with Andre about the up-and-coming BET uh, six-part series he wants to do on BET about Uptown. Yeah. And we're we're in uh, his house with the writers, you know, and we wrote out the whole history of Uptown, him and I. And we got, yeah. you know, information from other people, but it's like, it was me and him since we were nine years old. Yeah. You know, and so, I mean, there can't even be a story written about Andre without me being in it. Yeah. You could try. You could try. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. if, and like I said, I'm not mad at, at, at anybody doing the story. You, Everybody, because uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. said, don't get mad at anybody for doing a story or writing a story about whatever they want to write about, even if it's about you. If you yeah. want to tell the truth or you have something to say, write your own story. Yeah. Do your own. And that's exactly what I'm doing. So are you involved with Uptown Forever that's on BT? Uh, right now, we still, uh, I was involved, and we're still trying to figure out if there's a way for me to fit in the way I feel I need to be fitted in. If not, then they can go ahead and do it in all praises because I'm doing something about the history of Uptown music. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just entail uptown. Yeah. It entails how this whole thing got to where we at today, from where yeah. we came from to where we are today. Because me and yeah. Andre are at the forefront of pushing that whole thing together. Yeah. So, in, in, so I'm just going to run off a list of questions that all the, that people sent in. The first one they said is, which artist was the easiest to work with at uptown? None of them. <laughs> the easiest. I, I tell you, my favorite artist. Okay, who is your favorite? Heavy D. Okay. <laughs> if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have even been on a plane. I wouldn't well, even been on an airplane if it wasn't for Heavy Success. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was. He was my favorite. Um, the other question. And that's my brother. I knew him in Eddie F. And the Uptown. I mean, in the uh, Heavy D and the Boys, G Wiz, Trouble, Trouble T Roy. I knew them since they were 16 years old. Yeah. That's when they started. Yeah. I, I, I'm interviewing G Wiz next week. So, but yeah. And, and Eddie F was, that's a genius. I mean, he had every piece of equipment, everything. And me and him were so close that we lived across from each other and we drove the same Jeep. At the same time that both of us, a Cherokee fire red Jeep with <laughs> yellow rims. 
Cross Creek on Jones Road in Inglewood, a townhouse, <laughs> townhome. So, and he has every piece of equipment. He's the first one to go on stage to have like a whole setup of production for a rap group. Wow. He's very quiet and unassuming, but you, you don't realize behind the scenes how the difference he taught, he he taught, he taught Puff, him and Al B. Shaw. He taught Al B. Shaw. He studies under uh, Teddy, but he's just as good. I don't know if he's as, I don't know. T Teddy is a, in, a, in the league by himself. But Eddie is, Eddie's, we would talk like Andre and myself would talk. And we would talk about him starting a label deal. So he started this label called Untouchables. And he had Pete Rock, CO Smooth under it. But his production staff, he had Pete Rock. He had Dave Hall. He had all these other producers that wow. have created triple platinum albums, Mariah albums, just, just everything. He did everything. Wow. So, and people don't know that, you know, and I, I remember bringing him, he knew Gerald Busby, but you know, like he said, he was shy and everything. So when Gerald went over to Motown, I brought him to Motown. Oh, he did and, say he went to, yeah. Yeah. So I went, I went over to Motown and I reintroduced him to Gerald because, you know, and Gerald wound up giving him a, a single deal. I mean, um, giving him a shot to produce Johnny Gill's Rub You the Right Way and uh, something, the red dress, whatever. And that both of those records blew up crazy. And then after that, Gerald gave him a label deal at Motown called Untouchables. Wow. My goodness. The, the other question they had is, what happened to Nesta's Valguez's album? That was my man. That was Boricua on the label. Uh, he came there through my man, Ricky Gidron. And quite frankly, Andre just ain't understand <laughs> Nesto and his power and how, how strong he was and how strong it made the label to have a Latin king like that be on the label. And Andre yeah. didn't understand it. Because Andre, one thing he... He represented what he represented, and that's yeah. hip hop and R and B. And he didn't understand the power of a Latin king like Nesto, because I mean that Nesto would have took us over the top, and yeah. we would have caught a hit with Nesto, and it would been we would have owned MCA. Wow! Did 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 did, did you do an album but not release it, or you he just... did an album, and I think one single got released, and then controversy came and you know he, a good friend of mine's Ricky Gidron his father and his family I like to call him the first family of the black community coming from Chicago they had a big car dealership across the country and it's called uh, Dick Gidron Cadillacs and Lincoln's and they had everything and he bought Nesto to the to the because me and him and I he used to take me to all the Latin parties downtown and he would tell Andre about, you know, Latin artists and signing Latin artists and play a lot of Latin records for us. And, you know, Andre, he likes it, you know, but he didn't, he didn't, that's, he didn't, that's not what he represented. Okay. And that's okay. But Nesto was one of the great artists, a great, wow. amazing singer. And, you know, I really wish it could have worked. Yeah. 
Horace Brown, they asked about Horace Brown or Rooney Henson. Horace Brown and, and Ronnie Henson. Ronnie Henson mm. came, um, let me just say about this about Horace, who's incredible from North Carolina, you know, uh, where Anthony Hamilton came from North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, Jodeci came from North Carolina. Wow. You know, so Horace Brown, he came, like I said, at the end where we were in turmoil. We were getting ready to go. We were negotiating to go to Motown. So he got caught up in that. So we, he was signed to Uptown briefly, but wind up being the lead artist on Motown. And when he had good records, but we didn't have time to develop those records properly because we were dealing with the bullshit of the bureaucratic bullshit of record labels mm -hmm. and didn't have time to really focus on the records. And we didn't have the staff wasn't, it didn't gel yet because we yeah. had to intertwine with the Motown staff that was already there. So we're in the process of figuring out who we're going to keep and who's going to leave, who's going to hire it, be hired, who's going to, you know, and then quite frankly, I wasn't running, I wasn't running the promotional staff, which was a big problem. Mm. That at first they asked me to come back, but I had got a label deal and I was just basically consulting Andre at that time. Wow. Okay. And I think the other questions were uh, And without me, without mm. me running the point on that, it's all fucked up. <laughs> well, yeah, as I said, it was it was a shame that you guys left. The other question they asked is why Christopher Williams albums wasn't any wasn't more successful. I mean, one of my all-time favorite songs is um All I See, but I'm surprised it didn't go double or triple platinum. Well, you know the stories. So <laughs> I know you know the stories. That's why you asked me the question, and you know I'm honest and giving you an honest answer. Uh, you know, Chris is like family to me. He went to high school. I knew him before high school. I knew him when Chris was 10, 11 years old, uh, eight years old, and he's younger than me. And, and so, you know, we come from the same projects, even more projects uptown in the Bronx, him and I. We come from the same neighborhood, Valley, Co-op City. When he moved to private home down the hill from the projects, I moved <laughs> to another project, Boston Seacorp. And he's like my younger brother. We both came up hustling in the streets, you know, and I'm going to say this straight up. Chris is like Adonis. He's one of the prettiest, most charismatic men I ever seen in my life. And especially as a child. So at 11 years old, Chris had women 40, <laughs> 40 years old, 35 years old, taking shopping, buying this, buying that. He would dress like a grown man. He had, he was, like I said, he's a dunce at 11. <laughs> All right. And I never knew Chris could sing. And you know, we both grew up around a lot of gangsters. That's for sure. A lot of tough people. He's tough. And what happened is when I found out 
Chris could sing, I would be telling Andre about, yo, got this light-skinned kid, but a wavy <laughs> nigga, curly hair, this thing. And he, and, he, and he could sing like Teddy Pentegrass. Okay. And Andre was like, yo, bring him down because that's part of our culture too. You know, like we got, we're on some, we want these pretty people around us. And yeah. he was, he's going, cause you know why? He's going to bring the chicks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's very masculine. And I'm not saying I'll be sure wasn't masculine, but he wasn't the same kind of masculine as Chris. He wasn't that Northeast Bronx, uptown Harlem masculine. I'll be sure it was more of Westchester, soft-spoken, <laughs> still masculine, but it wasn't that, it wasn't you no know, Christopher Williams. Masculine. But Chris couldn't sell more, couldn't sell records like I'll be sure could sell, but he could sell those Teddy Pentegrass records that we needed to be sold. Mm. He fucked up and was unmanageable and was disruptive and didn't do the right thing and destroyed his own opportunity at Uptown to win. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. because as I said, the album, the album was good, the singles were dope, but I guess it's the promotional side. Of the it. album was incredible. Yeah, the album we were getting ready to take his record number one. Chris did everything in his power to destroy that. <laughs> Didn't show up to a promotional date, everything. Wow. And back in those days, that because it's it's a little bit different now with the social it makes media. A break. It makes a break. It'll make a break. Yeah. I mean, he didn't show up to several things. I'm not even. Maybe on the next interview, I'll just go detail. Yeah, no, detail no, it's, uh, it's just, a, <laughs> it's, yeah, another question, question that came in. Um, another question they asked was, that, what's your opinion about the record industry today? Um, do you think, um, you know, would Uptown have survived in this type of environment, how it is now? Absolutely, but I think that um, it's a different game today. It's a different game and one of the things you got to understand is is much different than when we were operating. We couldn't operate like the way we were today. Because mm -hmm. today, you have to be a part of the artist. You So when you bring an artist to a company, one, you got to have three, four million streams already. Mm -hmm. And with that comes $65 million, like Cardi B is getting a, a single, all right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if you just come with an artist that thing today and go talking about you getting, you're not getting signed. Um, you will get like Jill Scott right now. I'm not trying to say anything bad. She can't get twenty five thousand right now for uh, marketing or a record or anything from a, a company like Universal. Cardi B could get sixty million a single right now. Wow. And the reason why is because, you know, they have no interest in R&B records like that. That kind of music, they have no interest. These kids, they're not gonna buy it. And adults, they don't wanna buy it. They'll, they'll buy a single. They're not gonna support the artist. And so if the artist is not going on tour, they're not making um, money because they're not making any money off their records. Wow. Because they're going to, uh, a Jill Scott record, you might sell 100,000 copies right now on a single. 
you got somebody like little Uzi or Boozy or Woozy or whatever his <laughs> name is. He, he put out a single and make $60 million off of it. Huh. And get 500 million streams. So it's, it's, it's a different game. And, and, and so the, is it the Totally limited? different game. Totally different game. You're not, you're not getting signed off of talent. You're getting signed off of how many followers you have, how many streams you have. That's what it is. Kim Kardashian makes more money than any artist, period. Record, <laughs> period. She makes more money than Justin Bieber. She don't sing a word. It's just, it's her street just streams. She gets paid. Wow. It's a different game. Yeah. The, the other question was... Um... And these new artists are in control of their publishing more so than we were back then. They, they, they get everything. They're, they're, there are no masters now. There's no big giant tapes. Masters is digital. So I own that. I, I'm owning everything. They don't even know what they're asking to own. They know that you're supposed to own everything. That when we were doing it, Universal will not let you own everything. You're not owning everything. You're not even owning 5% of your shit. Wow. So is, the, is the power shifting to the artist, in a sense? The power shifting to the artist and the producer and the writer. If mm. they know what they if you don't know what you're doing, if you take an advance and they say, well, you know, I'll give you $2 million, $3 million, <laughs> And then you take it and then, you know, just sign over your publishing to me and your rights to me. You, you, you fucked yourself. But most of these artists, they heard the, sto the tragedy stories already. <laughs> you know, they heard the locks. They heard all the stories already. They're not doing that. Cardi B is coming in the, in the room like, I own everything. I own my name. I, own, <laughs> I license my name. I copyrighted it. And, uh, and and instead of you guys giving me four cents a stream, <laughs> I want 25 cents or else I'm not doing shit. Wow. Jill Scott can't come in there and Erica Badu can't come in. They can't demand that. Jodeci can't come in. They can't. They don't care. They're like, I'm not. I'd rather you not be on my label. Yeah. Just because they're not going to get the streams because no one's going to be interested. I mean, Carter Beacon. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The other question they asked was the um, now when because when you did the TV show New York on the cover, did you get involved with that as well? Um, the New York on the cover. Andre did that. That was Andre and Alonzo's idea, and I think Andre Alonzo got moved out of it some kind of way. I I was involved with the music part of it. Okay, and, and that's it. You know, um, Andre didn't have the power that he had, and he had a production staff. He had a staff that he had working with the film side, but they didn't necessarily had have the relationship with the artists okay. to get the artists on there. So Andre, that's what he would come to me for, to help with getting the artists on the television show. And then 
Dick Wolf and them just finagled him out of that completely. <laughs> How did you get Guy to reform, to do a single? Tell me what you like on that album, because a lot of us were like... It was uh, television. Everybody want to be on TV. So they they, they got Teddy and Aaron and David to all agree to come yep. together. Wow. Yep. Television. Because that, unfortunately, that was, um, you know, for all of us who was like, because Teddy was doing Blackstreet, all of a sudden we're seeing a guy single, and it just mm -hmm. was like, and there was no real promotion about it, but that was a, a big thing. Oh, yeah. they never did. Guy, that was their biggest problem. They never did promotion. They never completed a real concert. I mean, tour, excuse me, you know? They uh -huh. never completed nothing. I always used to think that Guy was on Uptown, but they just felt like they weren't, you know, Jodeci, Mary, um, Ford MC, they felt like they were Uptown in the family. For some reason, Guy... Well, they fell out because of Gene and Teddy. Aaron didn't want to go, you know. Damien didn't want to go. It was Gene and Teddy. Okay. So they, 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 were, they were on Uptown, but they, they just seemed like they were very independent. Right. Another question somebody asked, ask him about the Polo Ground record label and the J Love Entertainment Group and the barbershop. Right. <laughs> right. So all of that was a, uh, a you know, subsidiary of Andre Harrell. <laughs> okay. And it was because Andre Harrell that I was able to do that. But at the same time, it was Andre was the one stagnating me at the same time because Andre just wanted me to do marketing and promotion. And he was trying to get me to come back when Motown was in turmoil to come back and help him uplift the label because he knew that I could come back with the right music and get the ball rolling again immediately. Yeah. So I wouldn't. So I went on to create Pole Ground and J-Love Entertainment. The J-Love Entertainment was the management on Polo Ground was the label. And Polo Ground, we started at Uptown. That Andre had given me a label at Uptown and it was Polo Ground. Okay. And named it Polo Ground. And Polo Ground was because it's Uptown Harlem. The Negro Leagues played there. If you do your history research, uh, the Ruckers is there. Okay. And that's what we were about. So I named my company Polo Ground. And so Polo Ground was that. And I named it after the projects too, because that's where the baseball field was there. So my logo was like a project sign. When you go uptown to the project, you see Polo Ground. It's a okay. blue and orange sign and shit. And so I called it that. And my first artist was on there was Anthony Hamilton. Okay. Yeah. And then I had a producer called George Pearson who produced all the uh, records with Poke and Tone, Trackmaster. Okay. Trackmaster, yeah. Uh, yeah, they produced so many records with them. And we actually produced the only hit that came out of Motown, which is Stilo from 702. Yes, yeah, yeah. So did, and then, mm -hmm. so I opened up a barbershop because I'm from uptown, and that you know haircuts mean everything. 
haircuts, <laughs> bro, everything. And if you had a fucked up haircut, Andre would hate you for life. <laughs> he looked at your head and your head was fucked up. He was like, I hate that man. <laughs> and we always would talk about the kind of haircuts and everything was, so I opened up a barber shop and I was, I'm like a barber. I know how to cut, I hired people. I showed them how to do hair. I learned how to do hair, dye, all this kind of stuff. Before all these guys started putting all this Beijing in their <laughs> hair and dyeing their hair, I was learning how to do that 25 years ago. Wow. And uh, now all these guys got uh, dye in their skulls. They're trying <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, you know, they got a new style of haircut where you can give a guy a wig and cut some waves in their hair and they can have a, a hairpiece for a day or two. <laughs> and, uh, and also, I opened the barbershop as a marketing arm okay. to bring the whole area that I was in was the, it was the film district. And so the, all the Broadway plays are around there, all the films, it was the film district and the music district. Yeah. So it was uh, Motown and Universals in Worldwide Plaza. Okay. I lived in 350 Worldwide Plaza, and my barbershop was at 729 uh, between 9th Avenue, 8th Avenue, and 9th Avenue. And it was called J Love Spot. And I would shut down the whole block and give barbecues and free haircuts and, you know, for hospitals and everything like that. And everybody would come. Um, Hillary Clinton came to my shop wow. and got her hair done in front of a bunch of men, you know. Um, Tyra Banks, um, just everybody, like Mike Tyson, this this person, every artist that you can name, every executive that you can name, every financial billionaire, everybody came to my shop, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Every designer, Tommy Hilfiger, this person, that person, Puff, everybody, so everybody, and I would, I'm one of the original guys that started, you know, you got to pay, you got to pay to look good, baby, I'm going to make you look good. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. teach you how to steam your face, dye your hair, cut your hair right. And it's going to cost you $125. <laughs> and I started that. Expensive haircuts and also bringing people together just to talk in my shop. And, I, and when you came in it, it was a whole history of music and Broadway and Hollywood in there. Mm. And it's not just a black shop. You know what I mean? I just I wanted to make it a shop where black yeah. minds could come together and express, and you know, there were films shot in there. A lot of people started barbershops as a result of doing that. A lot of, you know, like when you look at LeBron James, the shop, all uh, those concepts come from me. Yeah. And and the thing about it though is, I'm not trying to say anything bad because I, I love it. They don't, they can't do it right because it's not authentic. Mm -hmm. And that's what, what was special about my shop. Now, the thing that would have taken my shop to another level is me selling products, not haircuts, products. Because the beauty business is a $30 billion, $40 billion business. It is not off of haircuts or anybody doing hair. It's off of products. Okay. So you got it. And, you know, when you educate somebody, when you educate somebody, they learn and then they move on. They do the puff daddy. Yeah. <laughs> they, go, they go and open up three or four shops. 
but the thing about it is most people, they don't think you have to be in the right place. It doesn't matter if you go to Brooklyn, Queens, or the Bronx. Yeah. None of that shit is Manhattan. Yeah. None of that shit is in the heart of the film business, the music business. That's where you want to be, or the financial business. But is it true that when you close the shop that you broke everything that you could take with you? Absolutely not. I wish okay. I did. <laughs> okay. I would, I, I, you know, if I, if you would have told me that years ago, I would say I would have blown that motherfucker up because I didn't own that. <laughs> what, what, what's true is that it, what it taught me was don't ever do anything. You don't ever, uh, hello? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Don't ever do rent anything or lease anything, own everything. You don't have no landlord telling you whether you could play loud music or not loud, or the people in your shop were talking too mm -hmm. loud because people live upstairs. Yeah, that's ridiculous. You got to be an owner, a boss. If you don't own shit, you're not shit. You know, you, you're an employee. And, and was that the case in Uptown? Did you, because... Did you own? Did you who owned the masters of of, of um, with all the artists you signed? Was that MCA or did did, did you well, guys I get the stuff that I signed? I owned all the stuff that I signed, but I didn't own uh, any Uptown masters. Andre owned that, and okay. he sold. He sold. Uh, okay. Do you think the label could ever be revived? Because the, the, the label was being revived by a young man by the name of Steve Carlos, Stephen Carlos, and they gave him Uptown, and I hope that he could do a good job. I don't know what the future of the label is, but I think that uh, he's a pretty smart young man. Um, I've moved on from that, and like I said, I do film. Yeah. So I'm not sitting here trying to uh, suggest that I want to come back and do music again, because I really don't, because I'm at another level right now, quite frankly. Yeah. What is it that we can expect from you? Because I know you mentioned you did the Defiant ones, um, the, well, you was really good. Uptown, you can expect the Uptown story, the real one. Okay. Will you do it as a biopic or of a documentary like the the fine one? I'm doing both, and a biopic. I mean, do, uh, excuse me, a biopic film and a, a documentary. Yeah, because I think the the fine ones was, um, you know, I, I, it was really, it was really good at how that was done. You know, the the sort of flashbacks, the sort of different perspectives, just watching the narratives of Dre and Jimmy from different perspectives. And um, in some sense, I actually enjoyed Jimmy's side because it was, you know, my dad had food with Mac and, and all that stuff. So it was like, I could relate to listening to that stuff because I'd already known about the Dre stuff. So it was really interesting seeing his, where he came from and, and his thinking. Um, exactly. Yeah. And when you have all those elements, you 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 have to win. And then Alan Hughes, the best director in the world. Yeah. Um, and his, his brother is one brothers. of the greatest directors in the world too. 
Menace Society, was that not the... Menace, Dead Presidents. Yeah. American Pimp, From Hell with Johnny Depp, Book of Eli, you know. Yeah, Book of Eli, they, yeah. But, but they I haven't think, done a lot of films, but when they do, yeah, Boy I mean, Boy. Yeah, Menace Society was, was like Boys in the Hood, that type of... The big thing is, what's up with the soundtrack, the movie soundtracks? We miss those type of things. Right. They're just coming back now. They're okay. just going to start coming back now because Wait. something happened. You know, film guys, they look down on music people. They they don't think that music people are... They think they're tacky. Okay. They think they're tacky, but... And I think film people sometimes attacky in a different way though yeah but they're not going to come in and try to steal your publishing and, <laughs> and, you know they're not concerned with that because yeah. there's way 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 more money involved yeah so are you, so just for us to, to be able to look out for stuff so you're saying you've got the uptown stuff but anything in the immediate future that we should look we could expect? right now tupac Feeney, bio doc right now coming on hulu Okay. Right now, directed by Alan Hughes. Uh, the story of Afini, uh, Tupac's mother, and Tupac. Uh -huh. And it's not going to be focusing that much on the traditional stuff that has already been said. Yeah. Should not this, that. There's none of that's <laughs> going to be focused on. It's going to be on how did Tupac begin his journey to becoming who he eventually became. Yeah and his mother's journey and how she inspired him to become who he eventually became. Yeah. And I think I think growing up knowing her her story, um, you know, an actor. Well, her story know, is incredible. Yeah, we know about this whole Black Lives Matter, but she was there back in the in the early days and, right. and, and inspired him and stuff. When 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 should we expect that to come out? That's coming out twenty twenty two. Okay. Okay. Everything okay. we do takes a long time. <laughs> Unlike music, it takes longer with film and, and, and stuff? Not music. Music, you can get something out in three months. And right now, the way that these kids make music right now, you can get something out uh, the next day. And, and, and you know what I mean? You can yeah. get something. They making records every month they're putting out a single. It's not the same record business. This Before, when we put out records, it took us six months to prepare yeah. to release the record. We had to have a release date. We had to make sure the marketing was in place. You know, we had to make sure everything. None of that is important now. Yeah. I think there's the no, There's no street teams. There's no street teams. There's no uh, promotional teams. A record company now where you had a black music department had at least 100 people on staff. Wow. 200. Now it's three people. <laughs> the A&R, one head of promotion, and that's that. And he goes nowhere. He emails somebody something. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not in nobody. Are you enjoying the, the, the slow pace of the film in this side, or do you miss the, the hustle and bustle of the music? This shit is not slow. It's not slow. You are you working and you on call twenty four hours a day. You know what I mean. And it's like you got to be on point. Yeah. So it's not slow. It's, yeah. it's slow to put it out, maybe, but it's a daily fight. When you 
it's like music is it's war really yeah it's war like you don't have to you know you working with dr dre and jimmy and and alan hughes and there's demands yeah a question I always ask all my guests before I, I wrap up is that if you were stuck in an elevator and, and they say, oh, it'll take about an hour or two to get before we get you out, but we can give a movie for you to watch while, you, while we're getting you out, what would you request to watch? The Godfather. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really, that's a classic one there. The Godfather. The Godfather. They'll yeah, probably put on the movie, but they say, look, we'll put a play a song as we get the movie on. What song would you request to listen to? Uh, One Night Stand by Father MC and Teddy Riley. Okay. No, no, I thought that was... Um, I thought Teddy did the 69 and One Night was um, Eddie. It might have been Eddie. I thought, <laughs> Teddy, I thought Teddy did One Night. It might have been Eddie. Yeah, I know Eddie. We <laughs> okay, I know Eddie. But I definitely want to thank you. Somebody asked, "How come Andre didn't put out his mind was like an?" He was, in the, he was in the process of doing that. Oh, he was okay. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it's funny. You know, I, Andre was like, "Yo, you know, I'm putting that out," and I said, "Yeah," and he's like, "Yeah, you should start getting yours together," and I was like. I'm not in a rush. And he was like, why not? And I said, I'm going to live forever. That's why. <laughs> and he thought that was funny because I would say things like that all the time. And that's, that's one of the reasons why he loved me because I would say those kind of things. And he mm -hmm. thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And every time Andre seen me and we seen each other, we both had a big smile on our face. and was happy. And regardless yeah. of the business or anything, it always, at that night, regardless if we had a real bad fight in the daytime, that night was like, where are we going to dinner? All right, yeah. what are we going to do? And anybody that knows anything about Uptown and Andre and myself know that we were connected by the hip. Yeah. And, and um, I miss him. And, you know, there's nobody like him, ever. And I used to always say, when we were experiencing different things that, damn, we're never going to see this again. We're never going to see this again. Like yeah. certain times we'd be at the Hamptons and Mary would be performing and <laughs> it would be a Puff Daddy, Jay-Z party. And people would be, you see Bruce Willis, you see Sally Fields, you see you know, <laughs> uh, Buster Rhymes, this cat, that cat, this, that. And, you know, things would occur and you like, this is never going to happen again. And, wow. and the celebration, Uptown was built on and represented celebrating in yeah. the party. That's what the whole business model was based on, partying. Yeah. You know? And it's never going, for us, for me, yeah. never going to happen again like that. Yeah. No, I think it, it's, it's a character of the man that after letting Puffy go, that he could actually go back and work with him. Um, that, that, that to me was a, a man who had integrity and, and, and humility and, and, and just, he just felt like he was look, going to have to look 
look after when he went to went back when he went and met, right. met up with Puffy. I was it, it was it was a character of a man that he could do that. Um, you know that's that's and, and he was happy and he was happy to do that because I'm gonna tell you something else without Andre. He's the glue that connected everybody. Hello? Yeah, yeah, I'm here, yeah. He's the glue that connected everybody. And Puffy, Russell, or anybody, they wouldn't have the same connection if it wasn't for Andre. Mm. And I know that for a fact that every person that Puff knows Andre had something to do with putting them together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I, I definitely appreciate that, Jimmy, um, this, this opportunity, this history lessons and stuff. And, um, and I know we'll definitely be looking for, because if it's anything like the Defiant Ones, which was a, a remarkable piece of, um, of, 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 of movie making, you know, it was really, really in-depth story. I mean, I, think, I don't think people had done it that way that type of stuff. So if there's anything like that we're going to expect with the Athena stuff or, or uh, and the Uptown stuff <clears throat> that you're putting together, we're definitely going to be in for a treat and stuff. Thanks for watching. Please remember to subscribe to the channel, but most importantly to press the notification bell so that you can be notified when we do have a new interview. Loads to come, but thanks a lot for watching.